and the next verses uh, next week. John chapter 1, 19, verse 19 to verse 18. Tonight, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Now we'll have to move to get through that by now. All right, let's read John. Let's turn over to John chapter 1 and get this in front of us. John chapter 1, and let us read from John 1, verse 1 to verse 8. John chapter 1, verses 1, well, through verse 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That same one, that same one was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made. Without him nothing came into existence that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now, some of you got apprehended it, or comprehended it. Probably ought to be did not overcome. Now, we talked about light. We're going to need a little more light. Can you turn that light on right there? That's right. That's fine. Good. Now, this is the prologue, the prologue of the Gospel of John, and it's important. When you turn to that outline, I've got the outline listed at the top there, why it's important. It's important, first of all, this prologue, because it states the great themes of the Gospel of John. Light, life, belief, receive, reject, and so on down the line. It's important, secondly, because it states the plot of the book. Revelation, rejection, reception. He came unto his own. What is that? Revelation. His own received him not. What's that? But as many as received him. The reception. That's the plot of the book. More than that, it's important because it, it introduces us, when you look here, to the conflict that runs all the way through the Gospel of John. The conflict between Jesus and his adversaries. Between light and darkness. Between life and death. And the prologue introduces he came unto his own and his own received him not. There's the conflict. And then, of course, it's important because it states the principal topic. And the principal topic of this prologue is the incarnation of Jesus and the response to men. Now, there's a key word here we need to understand. It's the word, well, it's the word, word. The word, word. It comes up four times in the prologue and nowhere else. It comes up in Revelation chapter 19, but that's spoken of as the Word of God. But by itself, W-O-R-D, it only comes up these four times in the Gospel of John. Word. Now, the Greek word for that, without being technical, is L-O-G, uh, L-O-G-O-S, logos, logos, logos. We get a lot of words from Logos. We study theology. That's on that Logos. We go out to Memphis State University. We study life. Life is bios, B-I-O, and then we put that L-O-G there, biology. We study words, philology, uh, philology. Philo is love, L-O-G-Y, philology, the love of words. Zoology, that's a different type of life, zoe life. Zoology. And we get a lot of words. Love. Now, the Greeks had two words used in the New Testament. One is rhema. Rhema was an individual word, like carpet, seed, organ. That's rhema. But the word logos stood for a great deal more. It stood for the, the reason within a man, the rational part of the man. It has both a Greek and a Jewish background. So I don't believe that John depended much either on the Greek or the Jewish background. But among the Greeks, the word logos was common. John wrote his gospel here at Ephesus. He addressed it primarily to Greeks. To Greeks. To Greeks. That's why he had to translate Aramaic words in his gospel. Because Greeks wouldn't understand Aramaic words. Jews would, not Greeks. So he had to translate Messiah. He had to translate Cephas. They wouldn't have understood those Aramaic words. He wrote primarily to the Greeks. 
the Greeks had had for five, six hundred years since the time of Heraclitus. They had the word logos. Heraclitus was the man who said you never can step into the same river twice. Heraclitus was the philosopher of constant change. We've got some scientists today who are Heraclitian, if that's the right word, in their outlook that this universe is marked by constant change. Only they call it FLUX. That goes back to Heraclitus. This world is marked by constant change. So he never can step, he said, into the same river twice, the same place. Change. But behind all this change, there is a great reason, an impersonal reason. He called it Logos. Years later, a few hundred years later, the Stoics picked that up. The reason behind this universe was Logos. Now you come over to the Jews, the Jews also had it. But with the Jews, a Logos, a word was something that was dynamic, not static. God spake, and it happened. God let there be light. God spake. God said, let there be light. It was light. God spake and said, let the earth bring forth, and the earth brought forth. A word among the Jews was a dynamic thing. Now, what I'm saying is that when John used the word logos, it was a word that was not unknown to his readers. They'd had the background. But that's not the explanation of John. I'm not very strong in this idea, which is popular among the liberals, that the writers of the New Testament borrowed a lot of ideas from the Greeks in which to incorporate their ideas, and we have to take off the husk, the husk of the Greek form to get at the kernel. So God came to man. God came to man in Jesus. But the Greek form, the kernel, the husk rather, is the idea of a virgin birth. So we have to take off that husk, that husk, and toss it away. It's only a myth, a vehicle that teaches a deep truth. And the kernel is that God has come to man, that we see God in Jesus. Now, some of you got in your library Mr. William Barclay's book. Years ago, I said to our, our bookstore manager, we're not carrying William Barclay. That's William Barclay's approach, the mythological approach. You ought not to get tricked up by it when you read your whatever it is, whatever kind of literature it is. I don't believe that. And I don't believe that, that John and Paul borrowed from these. But he did use a word that was known to him. Now, what is this idea of word? Well, simply a word is a medium of revelation. If I want to communicate, if I want to communicate to George Sanders here, I use a word. Now, I could hit him on the jaw. That communicates. <laughs> I'm not. I had to settle up. I had a couple of dogs, our dog tonight, and another dog. Our dog's a small one. He took on a big dog. And I had to go out there, and se- that got me in the right frame of mind for tonight. And I had to separate those two dogs. Well, <clears throat> you see, they, I suppose they communicate, but if I want to communicate intelligibly to you, I have to use words. Word is the revelation of my mind and heart. A word is the medium by which I communicate to you what's on my mind and heart. Jesus is the word of God because he communicates in human flesh by his life and by his words, he communicates the mind of God. And therefore, he's called the word of God. Christ Jesus is the word of God because he is the means by which the invisible God makes himself known to man. So look at John chapter 1, verse 18. That explains really why we got it. What do we read in John 1, 18? No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son was in the bosom of the Father. He hath, yes, declared. That's ex agil. Ex agil. We get a word from it. Exegesis. Ex agil. Agil means to lead. And ex means out. And when I exegete a passage, I lead out of the passage what's there. So Jesus is the expositor of the invisible God. I can't see God. 
I can't see his love. Is God, is God like the God of Kant? Is God like the God of Plato? Is God like the God of the Mormons? What is God like? I look at nature, you say, you see God. No, because in nature I see the cyclones and the tornadoes. Nature's cursed. I can't see God clearly. John Calvin said, I need the spectacles of divine revelation to read nature aright. Where do I see God? I see God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's called the Logos. The Logos. Remember what um, uh, Philip said? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Philip said, Lord, show us, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. That's all we'll ask. Then he went on and asked some more. And that's all we'll ask. And it suffices us. Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long time with you? And haven't you understood this? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, if I said that, that would be blasphemy. If any man or woman stood up in this audience and said tonight, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. That would be blasphemy, but not of lips of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, he can perfectly exegete God. And therefore, what is his title? The Logos. The Logos, the Word of God. Now we got four things in this chapter. Four things in the prologue. Four things. We got two of them on the outline. Number one is the eternal pre-existence of the word. The second is the witness to the word, verses 6 to 8. The third is the advent of the word, 9 through 14. And then the experience of the word, 15 to 18. And um, we'll have it next time, so... We got in this prologue, prologue, we got three things. We have first the eternal existence, the eternal, the eternal dignity of the word, one to five. Then we got the witness to the word, and that's six to eight. And then we got the advent of the word, that's nine to 14. And then we got the experience of the word, and that's 15 to 18. Now, you'll get that later on. I don't even know why I put it up there. But you'll get that later on. Let's just take the first one. Let's take the first one. First one. The eternal pre-existence of the word. The eternal pre-existence. See, uh, uh, the eternal pre-existence of the word. The word of God in his divine glory. The eternal pre-existence. See, there's a, there's a, a chronology in here. If you look here. Here, here is the... Here is the pre-existence of Jesus before he came down to earth. Verses 1 to 5. Then step 2, before Jesus came, whom did God send? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He, or John the Baptizer is what it is. John the Baptizer. His forerunner, 6 to 8. Then, verse 9, that was the true light which lights every man coming into the world. Here he's coming now. Here's his advent. Here's his advent. He was in the world. The world knew him not. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. Here's his advent. And then in verses 15 to 18, we find out his excellence in the experience of men. What did John think about it? Father's fullness have we all received, grace upon grace. John said, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoelaces. The experience of the word by men. Verses 50. See, there's the logic. Before he came to earth, his forerunner, he comes, and now what is his experience? Now, tonight, we're just going to take that up. I can see that. The eternal preexistence of Jesus. Now, let me look at this. Will you look up here? Here's verses 1 to 5. There's a magnificent logic to verses 1 to 5. 
What do I call that on the title? The eternal, what is it? All right, the eternal pre-existence of the Word. Is that right? All right, now, there's a chronology. First of all, first of all, we have the, the Word of God, Jesus, before anything else was here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's one, one, and two. That's the essential dignity of the Word, before the world was created. Then, in verse 3, we have the creation of the world. And then in verse 4, from the creation to the cross, <clears throat> we have, what do I call that on the title? I can't remember it. What I call that is the activity of the word since creation. See, activity since creation. <coughs> That's verses 4 and 5. That's the logic of it. Before creation, before creation, verses 1 and 2. Way back yonder when only the triune God existed. Verses 1 and 2. And then verse 3, he created everything. And then verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, Old Testament, and his, the Gospels. And the light and the darkness did not put it out. It, cru it, it, it crucified him on a cross, but he came out. See, that's his activity. Now, the first one is Jesus, the words relationship, relationship to God. The second one is Jesus' relationship to the universe. And the third is Jesus' relationship to mankind. And that's the substance of that first section. John 1, 1 and 2 is Jesus' relationship to the triune God. He's a member of the Trinity. He's God. In verse 3, we have his relationship to the world. What is that? All things were made by him. And then we have his relationship to mankind. And what is that relationship? Summed up in two words. What is it? In him was what? Life. And the life was the? Life and life. See, that's his relationship throughout all the Old Testament period. So here's a chronology in verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 and 2, before creation. Before creation. Way back yonder in eternity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Way back yonder in eternity. Secondly, in verse 3, at creation, all things were made by Him. And then verse 4 and 5, from creation to the cross. In Him was light, and the life was the light of men, light shining darkness. Now, having said that, let's look at these. First of all, the essential dignity of Christ the Word the essential dignity of the Lord Jesus. Verses 1 and 2. And verse 2 is simply a summary of verse 1. And verse 1 is uh, probably, my friend, the uh, most pregnant verse in all the Bible on the dignity of Jesus. Verse 1 is probably the most pregnant verse in all the Bible on the supernatural dignity of Jesus. And it tells us three things about Jesus. In the beginning, what's the next word? Not began the word. In the beginning was the word. That's his eternity. Not simply preexistence. All law, Jehovah Witnesses. All law, the ancient Aryans. He's not simply pre-existent, he's eternal because he's God. His eternity in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And the emphasis is on that word W-A-S. Not in the beginning began the word, but in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Eternity. Secondly, the second thought we have in verse 1 is his personal what do I call it? Personal distinction? <clears throat> Personal distinction. He's a separate member 
of the Trinity, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God, God the Father. His distinction from the Father within the Trinity. And then third is His deity, and the Word was God. Emphasis in the first statement on was. In the beginning was the Word. The next one is on with, and the Word was with God. And the third clause, the emphasis on God. And the Word was God. Now let's look at those three. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That's the eternity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. When we <coughs> come to the Bible, you know, there, the Bible speaks of three beginnings. John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we touched and heard. Now that beginning of John, 1 John 1, 1, is the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. Second, we have the beginning of Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the second beginning. That takes us back to the threshold of time, between time and eternity. Then we have John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, what beginning is that? Well, that takes us back beyond the other two. That's not the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and it's not simply the beginning of the creation. It might be that. But the emphasis is on the word was at the beginning when God, the triune God, first created angels and then created this material universe. In the beginning was the word. He was already there. And the emphasis there is on the beginning. It's on the word was. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I took four years of Hebrew. <laughs> it's gone out the window now. About all I ever remember from my Hebrew was the first verse of Genesis 1-1. And I don't even think I could quote it now. Bereshith Elohim Ha Shemayat Wahayat. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. I was in the hospital in Houston for about six months one time and uh, there was an old, old gentleman in the same ward. There were four of us in the ward. He was studied for the rabbinate in the old country, back over in Austria, come to the United States. He woke up about five in the morning, and he smoked a heavy cigar. And by the time I woke up an hour later, I never could see him. I was in there two weeks before I saw what he looked like. See? One day, I beat him to the trap. I got up a little earlier, and I looked over there, and there he was, and I, <laughs> I said, Shalom, Shalom. <laughs> I had a friend from there on, and then I quoted Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which is long since gone. But that's in the beginning. Augustine said that God created space and time when he created the universe. You know, space and time are exceedingly difficult concepts. Philosophers wrestle with them, theologians also, and they really never come up with any definition. But long before space and time in this universe was here, Jesus Christ was, not began, but was. He was there. He was already there. Jesus is eternal. Why? Because he's God. Now, the old ancient Aryan, lived in the 3rd and 4th century, denied that. Arius, who was a presbyter of Alexandria, said that God, before he created this universe, God, before he created this universe, created angels. And the first angel God created was Jesus. And he called him the Son of God because he created him. Jesus is the first of God's created angels. But he's not eternal, and he's not God. He's the Son of God. So when some of these friends knock at the door and want to sell me literature, and I ask them, oh, I say, I've met you. You're an Aryan. See, you're an Aryan. 
because Jehovah Witness is nothing less than the resurgence and revival of a heresy, the church, the church, uh, uh, the church denominated heresy in the third and fourth centuries by Athanasius. The great Athanasius, the great Nicene Creed, says that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. It took the church about three, four hundred years to work out on the theological anvil the statement of it, but from the very beginning, very beginning, the church believed that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is God, and he's eternal. He's eternal. Micah 5, 2 speaks of the coming of Jesus, whose goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting. Jesus Christ is eternal. That's his dignity, the eternal God. Second great thing is his personal distinction. Verse, the second phrase in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, the emphasis there, you want to circle three words in verse 1? What would you circle? What's the first word you'd circle? Was. Was. That's his eternity. He was. What's the second word? With. That's his personal distinction from God the Father. What's the third word? God. God. That's his deity. All right, we're on the second one. Jesus was with God. With God. Now, that means he was with God. Will you look here just a minute? The Greeks, without getting technical, the Greeks sometimes used an article like the before a noun, sometimes they didn't. In the Greek here, it says, and the word was with ha theos, with the God. And there the emphasis is on a person. In the next phrase, it says, and the word was, and there's no the. Word was God, and the emphasis there is on the nature. So the word was with the the God, that means the Father. The last phrase, and the word was theos, no article. Word was of the nature or the essence of God. Now when it says the word was with God, that speaks of the fellowship between the Father and the Son. There's a personal distinction between the Father and the Son. Personal. We believe as Christians we are Trinitarian monotheists. A mono, mono, one, theos, God. We believe in one God. The Muslims and the Orthodox Jews say we're tritheists. We're not. We're monotheists. We believe in one God. But that one God subsists in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is 100% God. The Son is 100% God. Holy Spirit's 100% God, but we don't have 300%. One God, three persons. Now, you know, that's a mystery. It's a mystery. Now, Bertrand Russell, the atheist, said that the doctrine of the Trinity was a mathematical absurdity. You see, and he was a very vigorous opponent of Christianity, very lucid and vigorous opponent of Christianity. He said it was a mathematical absurdity because you can't, one can't be three, and three can't be one. We don't say that. We say that God is one in one sense, whereas he's three in a different sense. And that's not a violation of mathematics. One in nature. John 10.30. Now are you listening? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now listen. When Jesus used the word one there, it's, it's a E-N with a rough reason, hen, 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 which is the neuter for one. If he'd used the masculine, he would have said, I and the Father are one person. That would have been wrong. He didn't say, I and the Father, one person. He said, I and the Father are one thing, one nature. I and the Father possess one nature. How do we baptize people? We baptize them in the... I hope nobody says names. And I hope you don't say revelations. See? It's singular, name. Baptize them in the name. 
singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus, when Paul puts the name of the Father and the Son together as a dual subject, in 1 Thessalonians 3, he uses a singular verb. Two persons, one nature. Now, what is a person? We speak of a person, what's a person? Well, it's hard to define. Basically, a person is somebody who's marked by self-consciousness, not self-conscious, being shy and timid, but self-consciousness. I'm able to distinguish myself from somebody else. Now, the vegetable out there, the tree out there, doesn't have consciousness. The dog has consciousness. He knows you are there. I'm here, see, consciousness. But the dog doesn't have self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is the ability to see, to get above myself and to analyze myself. Self-consciousness. That's one mark of a person. And the second is self-determination, the ability to exercise a rational, make a rational choice. That's person. Now, each one of the members of the Trinity is a self-conscious, self-determining person. Did Jesus pray to the Father? Come on now, did he? John 17, Thou Father, Holy Father, Thou Father, if there's no Trinity, Jesus was muttering to himself. See? Was Jesus talking to somebody else? Yes. There are two persons then in the Trinity. See? And as a matter of fact, there are three. Ephesians 2.18. For by, by one spirit, we have access to one spirit. We have access by one person unto the Father. We come by, that's why we don't pray, I don't pray to the Holy Spirit. That's why I don't pray to the Son. We are taught in the New Testament to pray to the Father. Disciples said, show us to pray. He said, when you pray, the Lord's Prayer is the one prayer Jesus never prayed. He had no debt, sins, for which to be forgiven. When he said, when you pray, you say, our Father. So by one spirit, we have access by the Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus, unto one Father. John 14, 16. I, I, said Jesus, I will pray thee, Father, and he will send you another comforter. I, the second member, will pray the first member of the Trinity, and he will send you the third member of the Trinity. And all through the Bible, there's a Trinitarian stamp. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 14. Trinitarian stamp. The Father, 4, 5, and 6. The Father chooses, predestinates, accepts us in the Beloved. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. The Father, the Son, forgives us, sheds his blood, and gives us an inheritance. And verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit seals us to the day of redemption. The Father, are you listening? The Father planned it. The Father planned my redemption. The Son purchased my redemption. And the Holy Spirit applied redemption to me and saved me. And there's a divine order. And Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. The Word was with God. Now we come to the third statement. We come finally to the third statement. <laughs> All right, what is that third statement? In the beginning was the Word. That tells us about Jesus what? Come on, now it tells us about his what? Eternity. The Word was with God. That tells us about his personality, distinct from the Father. Now we come to the third one. And the Word was God. Jesus is God. The word is with word is God. And by the way, don't let anybody catch you on a translation. Which some trans like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they use one, they turn that around and say Jesus the word was God, 
They say God was the Word. There are some translations that switch that. Some of these Jesus-only groups. That's not right. God is the predicate. Word is the subject. The subject. How do you know? Because the article is with the logos and not with theos. The Word was of the nature of God. That's what he says. The Word, ha logos, the Word was of the nature of God, theos. Without the article, the emphasis is on nature. Jesus Christ is God. Now, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is God? What do we mean when we say Jesus is Son of God? That runs all through the Bible. In theology, when I teach Christology, the students have to memorize and know well about eight arguments for the deity of Jesus. We're not going to get into We're not getting into one of them. But the Bible, all the way through, affirms that Jesus is God. Not simply in the statements. Statements such as 1 John 5, 20. <clears throat> you ought to write that down. By the way, when these people knock at your door. Because of 1 John 5.20, Jesus is called both the Son of God and God. Let's take a minute and look over there. Will you please? 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 1 John chapter 5. Look at two passages, as a matter of fact. One of them is in Romans chapter 9. We won't look at Romans chapter 9, verse 5. But there's a great statement of the deity of Jesus which the Revised Standard Version virtually denies. And that's why we don't sell the RSV at the bookstore. Not simply for that reason, but it waters down these Old Testament affirmations of the Messianic character. All right, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Here's a great verse. We know that the Son of God is come. Now, Jesus is called the Son of God there and has given us an understanding that we may know him, God, that is true, and we are in him that's true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, what's the next word after Christ? Now, that's a pronoun, isn't it? And the pronoun dramatically goes back to its closest antecedent. What's the closest antecedent to this? Jesus Christ. The word this refers to Christ. Now let's read that last statement. This, this one, Jesus Christ, is the true, what does it call it? God. The Bible calls Jesus the Son of God. The Bible also calls Jesus God. Now you look here. In relationship to the Father, he's the Son of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. In relationship to me, he's God. See? Speaks of his dual relationship. So in verse chapter 5, verse 20, he's the son of God, but he's also God. And here's a clear affirmation of the deity of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. Here is an astounding passage. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. First chapter. Hebrews 1, verse 5, Hebrews 1, 5. Now, you know where that is? Some of you need to learn the books of the Bible. You're, not, you're way over the beginning. I see a man who's looking over in the Apocrypha. <clears throat> All right, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, <laughs> verse 5. For unto which of the angels said the Father? He, the Father, at any time. Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when, and again, that word again goes with bringeth, speaking of the second coming of Jesus. When he bringeth again in the first begotten of the world, second coming, he says, let all the angels of God worship him, Jesus. And worship belongs only to God. And of the angels, the Father says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, the Father says, thy throne, what? Here's an astounding thing. The Father calls his Son what? Oh, God. Oh, God. Here's the Father speaking. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, oh, God. He could have said, Thy throne, my son, but he 
is thy throne, O God, is forever and forever. Tremendous affirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we say that Jesus is God, what do we mean? When we say that Jesus is God, what do we mean? When we say that Jesus is God, we mean simply that whatever we can predicate of God, we can predicate of Jesus. Whatever we can say of God, we can say of Jesus. Are you following? What can we say? Not whatever we say of the Father, we can say of Jesus, or whatever we say of the Spirit, because there are certain peculiar characteristics that belong to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But whatever we can say of God, the triune God, we can say of Jesus. What can we say of the triune God? God, well, I make my students learn the old confession, catechism confession. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What do we say of God? We say of God that he is omniscient. He knows everything. So is Jesus. We say of God that God is eternal. So is Jesus. We say that God is omnipotent. So is Jesus. He fed the 5,000, few loaves and fishes, still the storm. He's omnipotent. We say that God is immutable. He never changes. Never changes his plan. So is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. Whatever we can say of God, we can say of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. And the first verse, and that's as far as we're going to get tonight, and I kind of suspected that. See, that's why I knew we were not going to get through this in one year, perhaps two years. See, but I read of a man who preaches up there. Now listen, listen. Preaches up north, and he's in the Gospel of John, and I think he's in his sixth year. So morning, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. So I'm not worried. I'd rather nail these down. And the first verse in the Gospel of John is the most profound verse in the Gospel of now, the second verse just summarizes. That same one, the word is God, was in the beginning with God. See, that simply comes back and says the same thing. Jesus Christ is God. Now, I close by saying, what does this mean? Personally, here are three great facts about Jesus. Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. Jesus Christ is personally distinct from the Father. He's a person. And Jesus Christ is God. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me suggest in closing and quickly. It means three things. Now, I want you to listen. I want you to listen carefully. It means, first of all, that we can know the truth about God. That Jesus is God and he's come to us then in flesh it means that we can know the truth about God. The greatest search the universe is a search for God. You know, men are searching for the planets today and astrophysics and biology. But the greatest search that has been occupied the minds of men from the days of Homer and Heraclitus and Plato and Plotinus and John Stuart Mill all along the way, whether believers or unbelievers, is God. Is there a God in this universe? Is there? Is there a God or is there not? And if there is a God, what is he like? The prologue says that because Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, we can know the truth about God. Now, to turn that around the other way, we know, secondly, that God is like Jesus. See, we have a, sometimes a peculiar concept of God. We think that he's a tyrant. Or way on the other end, we think that he's a grandfather who never will discipline his children. We have all sorts of views of God. Thomas Jefferson 
And Tom Paine thought that God was an absentee Lord. They were deists. God created this universe, invested it with natural law, let it run, never interfered, went off to sleep. Let it go. Never interfered. Uh, some men think that God is uh, simply a tyrant, especially in primitive religion. I'm always afraid of God. So I got to sacrifice my little children. Throw my child to the altar to appease God. What is God like? God is like Jesus. When I see Jesus, I see God. When I see the patience of Jesus, I see the patience of God. When I see Jesus weeping over the multitude, I see the compassion of God. When I see Jesus dealing with a fallen woman who none other of the women or the men in the city of Samaria would touch. She came at noontime to draw water because she knew that only early in the morning and late at night would the women come to that same well. So she went there when nobody else was there. But Jesus went there. He knew exactly. Jesus knew from way back yonder in eternity that she'd be there and that you would be here tonight. In Jesus, we see the compassion, the tenderness. We also see the holiness of God. When Jesus drove out the money changers, when Jesus inveighed against hypocrisy, we see the holiness and the justice of God. And Jesus said, fear not him who can destroy the body, the devil, but fear him, God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. When I see Jesus, I see God. You want to know what God is like? Then read the four Gospels. You want to see God? Then read the four Gospels, because God is like Jesus. One final thing. Because, I want you to listen to this very carefully, because Jesus Christ is God. He can offer a, an atonement for sin that will really save. If Jesus is not God, my friend, then his death on the cross is simply the death of a martyr. It's impossible for a liberal who denies the deity of Jesus to sing many of our hymns. I love the hymn of old John Wesley. I love the life of John Wesley. And I love the hymns of Charles Wesley. And I love that hymn that's hard to sing, and especially for me because I'm a poor singer. But I love that hymn, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The old John and Charles Wesley believed that Jesus was God. So Charles Wesley wrote, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Who is that one that hung upon the cross? That's God. Puss walked at Calvary. That's God. Who is it that established his beachhead at Bethlehem? Born in a crypt. That's God Almighty. Who is that walked the long road to Calvary? That's the eternal God. And it was the God-man. The, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That means an angel can't save him. That means that God unincarnate cannot save you. God without a body can't save you. God has so ordained it that fallen human nature must be redeemed by human nature. So right at the threshold of human history, he spoke of the seed of the woman, a member of the human race. Because Jesus is a man he can shed blood and die for sinners. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Jesus, therefore, became a man to shed blood to die for sinners. Because he's a man, he can shed blood. But if that's all he were, then his death is only the death of a martyr, and it only sets for me an example. But he's not simply a man. He's God. And because he's God, that death has infinite value can save an infinite number of sinners. Because he's a man, he can die. 
Because he's God, that death has infinite value. And Jesus Christ is the God hyphen man. One person, two perfect natures. By his human nature, he died and shed his blood for us sinners. By his divine nature, that death possesses infinite value. And if I deny that Jesus is God, might as well close the doors of my churches. Join the ethical society. Close the door of the church. Call home the missionary. Close the Bible. We have no gospel because the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel doesn't tell me what I am to do, but what God has done in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, came to this world and died for us poor sinners to bring us back to Himself. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And it's just strange to me, my friends. Can I say this? Can you be very quiet? just surprising to me that anybody could sit here tonight and know about God's love for you personally and not respond. If you were the only person in all the world, Jesus would have come and died for you. Did Jesus die for sinners? Yes. But he died for you. Paul wrote, who loved me, gave himself for me. And you were the only sinner Jesus would have come and died for you. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Have you embraced it? You are here tonight. You're not a Christian. God loves you. I say this kindly. Outside of Jesus, you're on the road to doom and eternal hell. That's not my word. That's the word of Jesus who died for you. But he died to save you, to bring you to God. And by trusting him personally, as I did, age of 14, Monterey Park, California, trusted the Lord Jesus as my Savior. You are here tonight. I don't care what your church is, what your profession. you without Jesus, then you're without hope. You're lost. But Jesus Christ loved you. He came to this world. He died for you. That death has perfectly satisfied the justice of God. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hear my voice, open the door, I'll come in. You want him tonight? You receive him tonight? You can by personal faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for thy grace and goodness. We thank thee that Jesus Christ died for us poor sinners greatest thing to be said about us is not that we were a five-star general or president of the United States or a great preacher, or great architect, great lawyer, great businessman, whatever. The greatest thing is that I am a sinner for whom Jesus died. No, God, we thank you for that day that the Holy Spirit brought us to the end of ourselves, brought us up against the wall brought us to the foot of the cross, and the ground was all level to the cross, opened our eyes 